Um, Nehemiah chapter 3, if you turn in your Bibles to that chapter, there's a lot of names there, and we're going to have a lot of fun with it. ABC has a program called Extreme Makeovers, and uh, they have a takeoff on that. They have the one that they redo a person's body and makes them or her look absolutely different than they've ever looked in their life. They don't even resemble the same person when they're done. Um, but then there's also something called Extreme Makeover Home Edition, where they'll find a family who is in dire circumstances, severe need, and they'll completely redo their home, give them the dream home because of their poverty or because of somebody in the war or uh, a variety of circumstances. Chapter 3, Nehemiah, for that matter, the book, the theme, is Extreme Makeover Jerusalem Edition. In 52 days, they tackle an entire town. And it's not stucco, it's not drywall, it's not wood, it's pure stone building rock walls. 52 days, the job is completed. Rebuilding can be a daunting task. If you've ever stood in front of a building after a fire or after an earthquake and the rubble is in front of you, and if it's a huge accident or incident, it's a daunting task. I had the sorrow and the privilege of working at Ground Zero for two and a half, almost three weeks. I was at the rubble site every single day and most of the evenings. Uh, we were... Uh, pulling body parts out of the rubble. We were helping with the firefighters and the police uh, who were working there, with the Verizon uh, phone folks, with the people loading the beams on the trucks, uh, bringing water, offering prayer and support. And I remember talking to people who were absolutely shaken to the place where they couldn't move because of what had happened. To go to Jerusalem today is pretty exciting. You go to the archaeological digs and you see piles of rubble and you get pretty excited about it. Ooh, this is from that era. This is cool. But those stones, those piles a few thousand years ago were not very exciting because people lived there and walls that had fallen down represented no security, absolute and total vulnerability, and the people were living in fear and depression. And that's what moved Nehemiah when he was over in the court of Artaxerxes. He heard about it. He cared about it. He prayed about it. And then he did something about it. So he asked the right question. We found that in chapter 1. And after asking the right question, he felt the right emotion. He wept. It bothered him deep in his core. It moved him. He then had the appropriate response in praying to God about it and seeking for a way to offer himself to fix the need, which he does. He goes to Jerusalem in chapter 2. He surveys what he's up against. He sees the pile of stones. He doesn't tell anybody anything. Again, he waits. Again, he prays. Then he communicates his vision to a few key leaders and then the whole group. And after sharing his plan, the people say, let us rise and build. Which now takes us to chapter 3. Let me just tell you what he's facing. Few people in number, limited resources, and enemies surrounding him. Few in numbers, limited resources, Enemies surrounding him. You'll see the enemies next week in chapter 4. But with all this going against them, they had something great going for them. You know what it was? God's promises. God had promised, and Nehemiah must have known it and believed it with all of his heart, that God at one time said that Jerusalem was the place where he would put his name. Or remember he, maybe he thought back to one of the Psalms of David, which says, The Lord loves the dwellings of Zion more than all of the dwellings of Jacob. And he said, there's a promise of God. This is the center of God's activity on earth. God wants me to be a part of this. 
We also have a promise when it comes to building the kingdom of God. Do you know that? Several promises concerning the church. Jesus said to Peter, Upon this rock, I, Jesus, will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God has given us his promise. He's going to build his kingdom. He's going to build his church, and he wants to use us to do it. In the third chapter, Nehemiah takes the huge problem of building a city, and he cuts it down to size. That is, he places people and groups of people at one little section. They're not going to tackle all of it. Just do this little corner, this gate, this tower, this section of wall, and put all of those groups stationed around so that not one person, but an entire congregation would get involved to make sure that the walls were built. Now, tonight, what we're going to do is this. Because if you're looking at chapter 3, if you're seeing how it's laid out, and it looks kind of complicated and even hard to get through, we're going to get through it. Mark my word. At least most of it. A good chunk of it. We're going to do it geographically and then theologically. We'll, we'll start working our way around the perimeter of the wall, counterclockwise, from north, then to west, then to south, then to east. And we're just going to kind of take it verse by verse. And then, after looking at the perimeter geographically, we'll look at the principles theologically and how it relates to us. Let's begin in uh, the first five verses with the north wall of Jerusalem. And we're going to have a few maps up on the screen that you could follow along. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priests, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. They built as far as the Tower of the Hundred and consecrated it, then as far as the Tower of Hananel. Next to Eliashib, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. Now, Eliashib was the grandson of another high priest by the name of Joshua who goes back in time several years to the era when Zerubbabel, ever heard that name? Zerubbabel came from Babylon to rebuild Jerusalem. If you want background on that, don't turn to it now, but jot in the margin of your Bible, the book of Zechariah. Go back and it will show you the problems they were facing during that era Zerubbabel was the political leader, Joshua, the high priest, the spiritual leader. This, then, is the grandson. What we just read mentions a gate called the Sheep Gate. Now, the Sheep Gate is in that northwest corner of Jerusalem. And interestingly, the Sheep Market still exists in that section today. Historically, it's always been there. Sheep were brought there. The priests met people in the sheep market, and that's where the priests collected the sheep to bring them through the gates onto the Temple Mount to sacrifice for the sins of the people. So because this place was at one time consecrated as a holy place for the sacrifice of the people, the priests took a very personal and keen interest in it and wanted to make sure they were overseeing the work. What I like is... A high priest is mentioned who becomes a builder and inspires other priests to build with him. I like it because the high priest didn't say, well, I'm a high priest. I'm an important person. That's below my dignity to get down in the stone and the mire and the rubble and the cement. I don't do those kind of things. I pray all day long. No, he, the high priest, the minister got his hands dirty, worked hard. Charles Spurgeon used to say to students, if you plan to be lazy, there are plenty of avocations in which you will not be wanted, but above all, you are not wanted in the Christian ministry. The man who finds the ministry an easy life will also find that it will bring a hard death. I'm sure his students just kind of sat there riveted to Charles Spurgeon when he said those words. Several years ago, I had uh, the privilege of having Dr. J. Vernon McGee speak in my pulpit. 
And at that time, he was in his 80s, maybe 80, 81 years old, frail, sweet old man. He spoke on a Wednesday night at our church, loved going through the Bible. And I hosted a radio program with him that day, and I asked him about going through the whole Bible. I said, Dr. McGee, a lot of Christians don't read through the whole Bible. I go, I know. And I said, for that matter, a lot of preachers, a lot of pastors don't teach through the whole Bible, nor will they take their congregations through the whole counsel of God. You've been doing this for a long time. Can you tell me why it is? And I expected some elaborate answer. And Dr. McGee said, because they're lazy. (laughs) Well, if you want to serve God, don't be lazy. And above just studying to teach If you're in the ministry, here's a qualification. If you see trash, pick it up. If you see a need, fix it. You see chairs out of alignment, straighten them up. Don't say, I'm in the ministry. I can't do that. i got to call volunteers to do that. I have to have my assistant do it. Just do it. Get your hands dirty. Eliashib, the high priest, first on the list at that northwest corner. Also, the sons of Hassaneah. Actually, it would be Hasanaah, but it's too hard to say, so we'll just say Hasanaah. Built the fish gate, <laughs> and they laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. And next to him, Merimoth, the son of Urijah, the son of Kaz, made repairs. Next to them, Meshulam, the son of Bechariah, the son of Meshezabel, made repairs. And next to Zadok, the son of Baana, made repairs. The fish gate if you have been to Israel, is by the present-day Damascus Gate. The Fish Gate was so named because fish merchants who were out at the sea coast, especially as far up as Tyre, would bring their fish, their fresh fish, to the fish market, which is in this area of Jerusalem. So they built it up. So far, so good. This guy's building, that guy's building. They're working hard. This group, all pitching in. It would be tempting and nice to be able to say, like a... Wonderful cartoon. They all got along happily ever after. Doesn't work that way. You'll see an abrupt change, especially in chapter 4, but notice the next verse. Next to them, the Tekoites. Those are people from Tekoa, a village about 10 miles uh, south of Jerusalem. Next to them, the Tekoites made repairs. But their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of their Lord. Now, what are these guys doing in Jerusalem? Here's the answer, probably. After the siege of Jerusalem and the 70 years of exile and the land in disrepair, it was bad enough living in Jerusalem, but some of these outlying villages had even less security than Jerusalem. So what people would often do in little townships for security reasons is they'd be forced to move to the big city. And the Tokoites are now living in the refuge of the city of Jerusalem. Even though it's not the safest place in the world, it's better than Tokoa. So the Tokoites are there, but they're not really putting elbow grease into it. There's no real commitment to the work. Why? We could come up with all sorts of reasons we just don't know. But it is interesting to me that the Holy Spirit has included that they were called nobles. It helps us understand, perhaps, that one of the reasons they didn't put their oomph to the work is they wanted to enjoy the benefits of the city, but they didn't want to work hard because, after all, they were nobles. Remember that scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where Paul says, You see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise after the flesh are called, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. He's not saying that there are no noble people in the kingdom, no wise people, no mighty people, just not many. I'm sure that tonight there are some of you who are, would be considered noble people. You're nobles in this community. You're well known. You're something. And we thank God for you. But the rest of us are just foolish things. That God has chosen to confound the wise. 
And perhaps because they were noble in their position, they exalted themselves. They didn't put their shoulders, as it says literally, their neck to the work. We have to realize something when it comes to working in the kingdom of God, whether it's a church or uh, a Christian organization of some kind. Not everybody is going to work. Everybody will expect the work to be done, but not everybody will want to be part of the work that is being done. To some people, church is a spectator sport. If it's not done right, they'll complain. I don't like this. I don't like that. They do it this way. They do it that way. They're not doing anything themselves. They're self-appointed critics. Self-appointed advisors. There's really no room for self-appointed advisors or self-appointed critics. There's plenty of room for people who want to work. As on this wall. I love the answer that Coach Bud Wilkinson from the University of Oklahoma gave the press when he was interviewed one time. They said, Bud, he was the football coach, what's your definition of football? He said, oh, that's easy. Football is simply 22 men who desperately need rest doing all the work and 50,000 people in the stands who desperately need work. Spectator versus participant. 22 people who desperately need rest, 50,000 people who desperately need exercise. Let's go to the west wall, beginning in verse 6. Moreover, Jehoiada, the son of Pasea, and Meshulam, the son of Bessodea, repaired the old gate, laid its beams, hung its doors with bolts and bars. And next to them, Melatiah, the Gibeonite, Jaden, the Marathonite, Maranathite, the men of Gibeon and Mizpah repaired the residence of the governor of the region beyond the river. Next to him, Uziel, the son of Harhiah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs. Also next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, made repairs. And they fortified Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. The old gate is on the western corner of the wall, the western wall. Why is it called the old gate? That's where older people went into the city. No, I'm just kidding. It's just probably a place where... I'm just throwing that in to see if you're with me. Just like the broad wall is where all the women went in. No, I'm just kidding. No, no, no. Aren't they called broads in New York? Right? Okay, I, I, you know what? I'm going to dig myself deeper if I go there. <laughs> old gate. Yes, old gate. There it is. Look in verse 8 at the interesting assortment of folks who have gathered with Nehemiah to build. Perfumers and goldsmiths? These are people who are used to doing light, delicate work. I'm sure when they went to bed at night after building the walls, their muscles ached a little bit more than people who are customized to doing hard labor. I'm sure their fingers were full of blisters. Rocks were not their friends. But at the same time, there they are building the wall. If anyone had, I guess, the right to say, it's not my job, it would be goldsmith, perfumers, and high priests. But all of them are involved. Now, it mentions the broad wall, and it mentions the broad wall because literally it was a a broad wall. 23 feet thick was this wall. Back in 1970, an archaeologist, professor by the name of Nachman Avigad, dug out a portion of the wall in the Jewish quarter of Jerusalem. And I don't know if any of you saw it on our tour, but there's a, just a section cut out of a housing development with a sign that says the broad wall from the time of Nehemiah. It's the widest wall in the city of Jerusalem in all of the excavations, and it's there today for those who want to see it. Can't walk on that portion of it. It's under guard, but it's there. Verse 9. Next to them, Raphiah, the son of Hur, leader of the half-district of Jerusalem, made repairs. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Harumath, made repairs in front of his house. And next to him, Hatush, the son of 
Hashabniah made repairs. By the way, if you're thinking of having children and looking for Bible names for your kids, here's a whole chapter for you. Malchijah, the son of Hiram, and Hashub, the son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section as well as the Tower of the Ovens. Next to him was Shalom, the son of Halohesh, the leader of the half of half the district of Jerusalem. He and his daughters made repairs. Twice in that paragraph, verse 9 and verse 12, we have two people mentioned as leader of half the district of Jerusalem. Now, on one hand, you have nobles who are Tekoites, who are over there yawning, they don't want to get involved. Now you have nobles of Jerusalem who are sweating, working hard, making sure the job is done. Also in verse 12, notice the women are out there, the young women working alongside the men in this grunt work, moving stones, Building the walls of Jerusalem. Now, we might want to suppose that the woman of this guy, the daughters of this man, Shalom, were out there because perhaps he had no sons to receive an inheritance. And in the book of Leviticus, I may be wrong, but it's around chapter 36, I believe. If a family didn't have sons to pass on an allotment to, the daughters would receive the inheritance. The only stipulation is they had to marry within their tribe. And it could be that these daughters were there for that reason. Either way, it's not just the men who are doing the work. It's the women who are doing the work. Somebody once said, when God wants to do an extraordinary work, he'll choose a man. When God wants to do an extra extraordinary work, he'll choose a woman. And throughout all of the Bible, we see how God has chosen not just men of God, but women of God to do his work. Deborah was a judge. Ruth, a Moabitess, who is an adventurer who made a commitment to the God of Israel. So many throughout the scriptures and throughout history. I had the privilege a few years ago of meeting two women who live now in Jordan. One is a nurse. One was a doctor. She is now in heaven Her name was Dr. Eleanor Saltow. Aileen Coleman was the nurse that I'm thinking of. They were living in Israel. They traveled through the Transjordan and then ended up in the country of Jordan at a a clinic that treats tuberculosis, lung diseases. And the reason they treat tuberculosis is the Bedouin tribes who work and live out in the desert and keep camels and animals often get tuberculosis from their camels. So almost every tribe throughout the Middle East, from Saudi Arabia all the way over to uh, Iran, Syria, Israel, will end up, if they have tuberculosis, in this clinic. Well, to be treated for tuberculosis, you're there for at least a month or two. So they have a great program in Arabic of preaching the gospel and leading those who come to Christ through discipleship. So they see tuberculosis as their friend. And they said, Skip, because of the nature of this disease and how it's ravaged the Middle East, the Bedouin tribes, to this day, there's at least one believer in every single Bedouin tribe in the Middle East. The gospel is spreading through the spread of this disease. But these aren't men running the clinic. These are women building the wall in a Muslim part of the world. If you know your theology and what Muslims think about women, this is a hybrid ministry. And uh, during uh, the last Gulf War, one of the soldiers sympathetic to Saddam Hussein, actually very anti-American, walked up to Aileen Coleman with a gun and pointed it to her head and started spouting off things in Arabic about Allah and how he was going to blow her brains off, uh, blow her brains out and She looked at him and said, you fool, pull the trigger. You'll send me right into the arms of Jesus. And this work will grow. And the man got all nervous and ran out the back door. (laughs) Men of God and women of God building the wall of Jerusalem together here in these verses.
Now we go to the south wall in the next two verses, verses 13 and 14. Hanun the in- and the inhabitants of Zenoa, 13 miles west of Jerusalem, was Zenoa, this little village, in the city for the same reason as the people of Tekoa. They repaired the valley gate. They built it, hung its doors with its bolts, its bars, repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the refuse gate, or as some of your translations say, the dung gate, which is down toward the bottom of the picture that you see up here. Uh, That's where the refuse of the city was brought out and disposed of in the valley of Hinnom. Melchijah, the son of Rechab, the leader of the district of Beth Hasarem, repaired the refuse gate, and he built it and hung its doors with its bolts and its bars. Now, this stretch of wall between these two gates is about 1,700 feet. Obviously, it was less damaged because of its location and protection by the hills. So it didn't take much work, didn't take as long, but the dung gate was the worst part of town to work. It was the smell, it was the sewer. Who would volunteer for this? Notice it says, Malchijah, the son of Rechab, leader. Don't you love that? Another noble, leader of the district of Beit Hasarim repaired the dung gate or the refuse gate, he built it and hung its doors with its bolts and its bars. Doesn't say he had a lot of help. Looks like he did it alone. Now the east wall, beginning in verse 15. Shalom, the son of Kol Jose, leader of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He built it, covered it, hung its doors with its bolts, its bars, repaired the wall of the pool of Shelah by the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, not the Nehemiah of this book, another guy by the same name, the son of Azbuk, leader of the half-district of Bethzur, made repairs as far as the place in front of the tombs of David to the man-made pool as far as the house of the mighty. The mention of the fountain gate, you'll remember... In chapter 2, when Nehemiah first came to the city of Jerusalem and made his night ride to scope it out, he went to the fountain gate, but it was so beat up and broken down, he couldn't even go around it. Look back at uh, verse 14 of chapter 2. Then I went out to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. That's how bad it was. And this is how good it gets when you have this kind of cooperation building the walls of the city. Now, we have a mention here of the pools, uh, the stairs that go down to the city of David, um, the man-made pool as far as the house of the mighty. The man-made pool is a reference to a pool that later on becomes known as the pool of Siloam, John chapter 9, where Jesus told the man to dip his, uh, wipe his eye after he put mud in it and he'd be healed. There was one water source in Jerusalem in this area we're reading about. It's called the Gihon Spring. It comes right out of the ground. The Gihon Spring, however, is down in the valley. The walls were up on the slope originally. And so the Jebusites, those were the original inhabitants of the city, dug through the rock and built a shaft, a vertical water shaft. When David and his men come, 2 Samuel 4, and see the city of Jebus, the Jebusites said, you know what? This city is so impenetrable, even if we have blind and lame people stationed on the wall, you couldn't get in. That's how secure we are. Well, David figured out that there was a spring underneath and a water shaft. And he says to his guys, hey, whoever can climb up the water shaft and break into the city, I'll make you chief of staff. So Joab climbs up, gets into the city. And Jerusalem falls because of this water source. Later on, there was a king named Hezekiah who figured this out. We're vulnerable As long as this water source 
is out here by itself unprotected. An enemy could just simply cover it up and we'd have no water. We couldn't get our buckets down that well anymore. So he constructed a tunnel that was 1,749 feet out of pure bedrock. He began at one end and at the other end, and his men dug through until they met in the middle. And there was a plaque they put in that tunnel. It's now in the Israeli Museum that talks about that meeting and the incredible idea of meeting at the same spot. They could hear each other's chisels and hammers, picks on the other side of the rock. So a pool was constructed, this man-made pool. That had been destroyed by the Babylonians, and now the repairs have been made. After him, the Levites, under Rehum, the son of Bani, made repairs next to him. Uh, Hashabiah, the leader of half the district of Kelah, and a whole lot of other names. If you don't mind, I'm going to skip a few. Go down to verse 26. Moreover, the Nethanim who dwelt in Ophel made repairs as far as the place in front of the water gate toward the east and on the projecting tower. After them, the Tekoites repaired another section next to the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. See the word Nethanim? It means temple servants. Who were they? You remember in the book of Joshua, there was a group of people who conspired against Joshua. They were Gibeonites. They didn't live very far away, but Joshua didn't know that because the Gibeonites dressed up like they were from a far country. And they said, we've been traveling for days and weeks and we're from a far country. And look, our bread's stale and our waters were out. And so a peace treaty was made between them. Because Joshua didn't know that they were actually next-door neighbors. He never would have made the peace treaty. God said, don't make any peace treaty with these people at all. When he found out that he had been tricked and that there was a conspiracy, Joshua consigned them forever to be water carriers, servants in the house of the Lord. These Nethanim are probably the Gibeonites. What better place to be a water carrier than by the water gate by the pool of Siloam and by the water source of Jerusalem. This is probably uh, where, uh, who they were. So uh, this is the first water gate conspiracy in history. Not Richard Nixon. We're talking ancient Jerusalem. You fell right into that one, didn't you? Uh, if you go to Jerusalem with us next time, you can see today a portion of the wall that has been built by the Tekoites and by the Nethanim. That section of the wall is beautifully preserved in Israel today. Beyond the horse gate, the priests made repairs, each in front of his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Immer, made repairs in front of his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, keeper of the east gate, made repairs. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zaleph, repaired. I don't know what happened to the other five boys. Repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, made repairs in front of his dwelling. After him, Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of the Nethanim and of the merchants in front of the Mifkad gate as far as the upper room at the corner. Between the upper room at the corner as far as the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and merchants made repairs. Those are the geological or geographical perimeters of the city of Jerusalem. The east gate is the gate that faces toward the Mount of Olives. In between that gate and that Mount of Olives is a valley called the Kidron Valley, and stationed right across on that Mount of Olives is the Garden of Gethsemane. The east gate is the gate that would allow you access into the temple from the Mount of Olives. Presumably, that's the gate Jesus came through on Palm Sunday. In the 16th century, a um, Turkish caliph by the name of uh, Salumain the Magnificent walled it up cemented it up because of the Jewish and then Christian idea that the Messiah will come through the East Gate. And so he wanted to stop the Messiah from coming to Jerusalem. So he adorned graves around it to defile, since you can't touch a dead body, and uh, barred up the gate so he couldn't get through, like that's going to stop him. 
but they did it. Okay. We read a lot of names and a lot of places and a lot of stuff that we would go, so what? But the Holy Spirit put chapter 3 in here for a reason. I want to give you principles that have to do with how we do church and how we build the kingdom of God. I'm going to give you five principles. Number one, God's work should be done in an orderly fashion. How do you tackle this kind of a job in 52 days without organization? Very well organized. 38 names of individuals. 42 district location names are mentioned. It's a very organized procedure. Paul said in the church, all things should be done decently and in order. The church is both an organism in that it has life, it has movement, it has, um, uh, it's never stationary, it's uh, growing. At the same time, the church is an organization. Now, I've seen one of two extremes. To some groups, it's all about the organism, free flow, do whatever you want. There's no rules, there's no regulations. And if you have an organism without organization, you have a blob. But some churches focus on the organization part so much, it's like even God doesn't have room to work. They overorganize it. Instead of letting it maintain its organic nature of moving and growing. God's work should be done decently and in order. You know what the Bible says. Jesus Christ is the head of the body. He's the one, the brain, who gives the orders to all the parts. Your brain is pretty amazing. Ten billion nerve units able to record what you see, hear, feel on an ongoing basis. Controlling 600 muscles, ligaments, beautiful form and function. And the first model worked. God didn't have to say, oh, here's the next year's model. In fact, the first one was much more perfect than even the present model. Principle number two. One person, no matter how gifted, cannot do the work alone. One person, no matter how gifted, cannot do the work of ministry alone. Something to notice in this chapter. Not just what's there, but what's not there. Nehemiah's name isn't even mentioned once. You say, I read it. No, but that's a different Nehemiah. Nehemiah, the guy who came over to rebuild the walls, his name isn't mentioned, but 38 others are. It's not that he's... Absent, he's obviously in control of the work. He came with the vision, with the plan. He dispersed the plan to others. Leaders came behind him. But the focus isn't on Nehemiah here. The focus is on people doing the work. Did you notice the phrase over and over again? Next to them, and then next to them, and then next to them, and next to them. That runs through the entire chapter. If it didn't, you'd have burnout, not building in 52 days wouldn't have the city built. But the fact that there was cooperation, the job got done. 1 Corinthians 12 says the body is not one, but has many members. This is something Moses needed to learn as a leader. In Exodus 18, Moses' father-in-law named Jethro, not Bodine, not Tull, But Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses, came out to the wilderness to see the work Moses was doing. And I'm sure Moses thought, my father-in-law is really going to be impressed when he sees the way I do my ministry. And so he watched Moses all day long as a problem shuffler from morning until night. Lines of people. We got to talk to Moses and only Moses, only Moses understands. Only Moses says the right things and will talk to God for us. And Moses loved it. All the notoriety. They thought he was great. At the end of the day, he probably thought his father-in-law would put his arm on his shoulder and go, Mo, that was great. Go do some Mo of that tomorrow. But he doesn't. He said, Moses, the thing that you're doing is not good. And I'm sure his countenance fell like, what, what did I do wrong? 
He said, the thing you're doing is not good. You will wear yourself out and you will weary the people. You're going to wear yourself out because no man can keep that kind of schedule. Number two, you're going to wear them out because they're standing in line waiting for answers. I mean, can you imagine what Moses had to hear every day? He stole my sheep. Or a wife saying, he snores so loud, the neighbors in the next tent bother us all night long. All of that kind of stuff Moses had to hear. The people didn't get a chance to get to meet with Moses on a daily basis. The lines extended. So the needs weren't being met. He says, Moses, what you need to do is choose other leaders and delegate it. You're gifted, Moses, but no one person can carry the load. Find 70 men who you can give this to. That became the basis of the Jewish elders, the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. You make some captains of hundreds, captains of thousands, fifties, tens, etc. Let them do the work. And the hard cases they can't handle, let them come to you. You give the final word. But you pray, you talk to God about them, and you study God's principles, and you teach them what God wants the people to do. Now, that is such a vital principle in leadership. When I first started in the ministry, I moved from California in a pickup truck out to New Mexico with a PA system and a guitar and a little stand to put my notes on. So I would uh, set up the PA system. I'd make the coffee. I'd get the guitar. I'd lead the worship, pass out the songbooks, put the guitar down, open the Bible, teach the Bible study. And then later on, kept the books, did all the counseling, and held a full-time job. Besides that, the day somebody came forward and said, I'm a musician, I said, oh, you're not only a musician, you're a worship leader. (laughs) And next week, you can lead worship here. And then somebody said, oh, I'm good at finances. Oh, you're a bookkeeper now. And I started delegating things because one person, no matter how gifted, can do the ministry alone. Now we're starting to build here. We're starting to see people come forward with ideas and giftedness, vision, plan. It's awfully exciting. Somebody once told me years ago that pastors can die the death of a thousand expectations. I said, now, what do you mean by that? He said, well, everybody who comes to a church has several expectations. They're expectations that are unrealistic. You'll never be able to fulfill them. Don't try. Keep your priorities and find other people to do the work. I found a Stanford University study polling congregants from churches around America. How much time should your pastor counsel? How much time should he spend in the word? How much time should he spend, et cetera, et cetera. Gave him a list of things to do. The average congregant expects the average pastor to put in 135.5 hours a week, which gives him four and a half hours per day to sleep, eat, and have quality time with his family. It's impossible. Answer, delegate. Find other people to do the work. Get a lot of different people to build the wall. I was in Amsterdam once, and uh, somebody asked, this was years ago, how big is your church? I told him. He quickly calculated, if you met with four people a day for coffee, you'd meet everybody in your church in 12 years. So I said, boy, that's perspective. (laughs) That is perspective. Here's the third principle. The Lord's work requires the involvement of all kinds of people from all walks of life. The Lord's work requires the involvement of all kinds of people from all walks of life. We need priests. We need nobles. We need perfumers. We need goldsmiths, men, women, locals, and outsiders. There's a place for everyone in God's work. And you know what? God loves variety. I can prove it. Look around. (laughs) Look at all of us. We're different from one another. Interview the person next to you after the service. You'll find out how different you are. Different backgrounds, likes, dislikes, hobbies, baggage, needs, etc. But that's the body of Christ, isn't it? There's not one member, but many members. The Holy Spirit gives gifts to Individuals as he wills. Gift of prophecy, gift of healing, gift of tongues, gift of helps. 
All different giftedness, all in the same body. One person imagined all of the tools in Jesus' carpentry shop in Nazareth having a discussion. Brother Hammer was presiding over this meeting. He said, I'd like to call this meeting to order. And of course, being Brother Hammer, he called it to order with a firm beat of his himself, the gavel against the desk. And somebody suggested that Brother Hammer should leave because he's so noisy. And Brother Hammer said, okay, I'll leave. But if I have to leave, Brother Screw has to leave as well. Because you've got to twist him and twist him to have him do anything. Brother Screw said, okay, I'll leave. But if I have to leave, then Brother Plain has to leave as well. Because he, all of his work is surface work. He has no depth. Brother Plain said, okay, that's fair. But if I have to leave, then Brother Rule has to leave. He's always measuring others by himself. Brother Rule got angry and he said, okay, if I have to leave, Brother Sandpaper has to leave as well. He always rubs people the wrong way. Just then Jesus walked in to build himself a pulpit to preach the gospel. And he employed the hammer and the screw and the plane and the rule and the sandpaper. And all the tools looked at one another and said, I perceive all of us are useful to the master's work. Building up God's kingdom requires the use of a variety of people with different kinds of walks and backgrounds. So what do we need here? Well, if you have uh, expertise in web, internet design, if you're a singer or a musician, uh, if you have any background in counseling, we need people to train uh, uh, young pre-married couples in marriage. We've got a couple, a few people doing that already. We need more. Uh, We need guys to paint and tear down walls and build new ones as we're going to get together some church work days and we're going to go to town. We need them all together. Principle number four. We have one minute left. In God's work, a little can go a long way. In God's work, a little can go a long way. The word repair is used 35 times in this chapter. The word build is really a mistranslation. It's literally rebuild. Repair and rebuild. Listen carefully. In all of the debris that lay around Jerusalem were all that they needed in that pile of rubble. They didn't need anything new, really. They just needed the old stuff. And a lot of times people are tempted. We need something new and fresh and different that's never, ever been tried. Let's bring elephants in church and have acrobats in church. Why? Just preach the Bible in church. Exalt Christ in church. Worship in church. Oh, but that's already been done. Yeah, God likes it. Let's do what he likes. As the prophet Jeremiah said, go back and search for the old ways. Not the new ways, the old ways. God laid out in his word what he wants, what he likes. Let's find that out and do it. A little goes a long way. Principle number five, we'll close with this. The task that you undertake should fit you. The task you undertake should fit you. Five times in this chapter, it talks about people who built next to where they lived. In front of their own house. They didn't go and commute to the other side of Jerusalem where they would be unprotected or where they wouldn't be able to get food, but right right where they lived. You know why? Well, it was practical. And number two, it would ensure that everybody did a great job. You live there. You've heard people say, oh, that's good enough. I don't live there. You do live here. Make sure it looks really good. In fact, you're going to put all your effort into it, aren't you? Because you'll go home every day and see it. It was really wise in planning. Just build where you are. Here's the application. God has given to you a certain bent, desire, drive, You're going to hear about certain opportunities and go, oh, that sounds right up my alley. Okay, we had a food ministry here. Who better than a chef to oversee that? And then the idea of cooking meals for people. Who better than a chef to oversee that? 
you don't want me cooking for you. That's not where I live. Unless you love TV dinners, hamburger helper, I can barbecue a little bit on a good day, but that's about it. You want to get people who are gifted at something and have them build right there. And there's a lot to be said for people who work out of their homes. Some people do their best work at home. They're busy. They're raising children. They don't have time to spend hours doing other things, but they can build into the life of an individual or be committed to somebody who's an invalid parent and give that kind of a care that will be a testimony and build into these lives the kind of ministry that will forever benefit the kingdom of God. Whatever you do, do all from your heart, all with a determined, faithful heart, knowing that your master will be pleased. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this brilliant plan prompted by your Holy Spirit. Though he is not mentioned, he is all over this chapter. Inspiring priests, goldsmiths, perfumers, locals, outsiders, men, women, nobles, and those not so noble, to work together for the same purpose, to build a city that would bring protection and joy for years to come. Lord, as we build up one another's lives with the gifts you've given us, we pray, Lord, that you would form a community of believers where people can come and be real and be safe, be received, be confronted if need be, so that we can grow in grace and knowledge. Lord, there's so many different kinds of people. Convince, Lord, by your Spirit that each one is important and vital to do your work. Raise up, Lord, for those for every task that is presented, not just by paid staff, but just those who would volunteer their time, their talent, their treasure to serve you. And Lord, we, as one, say, let's rise and let's build. As you inspire us in Jesus' name. And everybody who agreed with that said, Amen. Amen.